0: Hey, I meant to mention this yesterday, but I forgot I owe you an apology for the headline on this podcast on Friday. I used the word emasculate. It was pointed out to me by a couple people, really not the right word for the story we were talking about with regard to issue one and issue two, and the people who pointed it out are correct. So I'm sorry I used it, won't use it again. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston back from the Florida Keys. And Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin, is taking a day off. Let's get going. Cuyahoga County has been proud for years to support the arts with a tax on cigarettes. It's something the state legislature actually authorized Cuyahoga County to do. So, why is one of Northeast Ohio's chief advocates for the arts stopping work to keep that public funding coming? all of the arts organizations. Layla.
1: We're talking about Fred Bidwell. He's a philanthropist and a really visible arts leader who is chair of the five-member Board of Assembly for Action. That's the political action committee that's devoted to raising $1.5 million for a new levy campaign to re-up the 10-year tax on cigarettes that funds arts in Cuyahoga County. The current tax expires in 2027, but because the number of smokers has dwindled, dramatically reducing the taxes that are collected. State lawmakers have given Cuyahoga County permission to seek an increase. So it was looking like that was going to go, that was going to happen on the next fall's ballot. But in an op-ed piece that Cleveland.com published over the weekend, Bidwell, uh, speaking only for himself and not as a representative of the board, sounded alarms about the way Cuyahoga arts and culture is handling the money that flows in on account of that cigarette tax. CAC is the public body that administers all that money, and we're talking about $11 million a year that's generated off 30 cents a pack on cigarettes. Bidwell says that leaders of top, or, top arts organizations would not donate to the levy campaign until some chart changes are made at CAC. There are a number of chief complaints here about the organization Bidwell said the agency has has let its mission drift away from allocating tax revenues by a set formula to arts organizations based on budgets and other factors, and they've instead kind of begun creating and administering new grant programs to spread money more widely and thinly as if they were a private foundation. Also, they've spent too much on marketing, Bidwell says. They come up with programs that duplicate the efforts of, of the arts organizations they're supposed to be supporting. And while all those organizations are taking a financial hit because of these dwindling tax dollars, CAC hasn't cut its own budget at all. So Jill Paulson, CAC's executive director, denies much of that and said 90% of the money is spent on funding arts organizations. And for the most part, it's it's already encumbered and set aside for the next two years. And she chalked Bidwell's points up to squabbling over this diminishing uh, pot of money.
0: Yeah, I. Th- I th- it's ridiculous that he's going to halt the raising of the money because the money absolutely does a good, and this is childish. I always compare this, this thing to the West Side Market. You know, the West Side Market, the vendors always are squabbling. They're never happy. It's always a bunch of whining. <laughs> they right. drive you nuts. And it's the same with the arts organizations. They're, they squabble and fight away. This organization does a good thing. And in recent years, they have tried to divert more money to the smaller organizations, but it is a, a, a shrinking amount of money and the big organizations want it all. And it's just this ugly battle. And I always feel bad for the people at the top because they're trying to do the right thing, but everything they do gets questioned. Eventually the controversies get so big, they, they have to leave and they're replaced by new people who try it all again. Um, but it th- this just seems like a lot of noise. That's stupid.
1: Yeah, that's true. Steve Litt reached out to all kinds of people in the art world. The the big ones, you know, your Cleveland Museum of Art and the Orchestra, Rock Hall and things like that. And smaller players too and and recipients of arts funding. A lot of them didn't really want to weigh in on this. They kind of kind of towed that line and said they're they're hoping for a constructive resolution that benefits the arts community. I think everybody wants to get to a good place here. And uh yeah.
0: Well it was also a new debate going on about using the cigarette tax for this at all, because the cigarette tax mainly goes to people who are not of wealth and they're not the ones benefiting from the arts organizations. And the thinking is, why shouldn't the people who benefit be taxed somehow? You know, should you tax admissions to all these arts events to pay for them? You know, my suggestion is tax any bourbon that's over $40 because clearly those are the guys going to the arts but, but I, That's right. I I just, it, it, we, we deal with this. It's been in cycles over and over again ever since this tax was first passed. All of this nattering and, me, 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 you know, I want mine and it's not working and they're not being transparent. And I, I, Jill has worked very hard to overcome the previous criticisms of lack of transparency. And I think they've been pretty transparent. They just have less money. And, and to say they should cut their budget. They're just the operators. They're trying to do their jobs. So having less money doesn't mean they have less work to do. They're doing the same amount of work trying to parse it out. So that's that seems like a kind of a bogus complaint too.
1: Yeah. CAC has a meeting tomorrow and Steve's gonna, gonna tune in. So we'll see if it becomes a uh uh, a food fight, as I've heard him describe some of these yeah,
0: Sadly, it probably will because it always yeah. does. We're due. It's been six, seven years since the last time this thing all blew up and people all screaming and yelling for their share of the money instead of acting like adults. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I don't know that anyone would have predicted this? What percentage of cities, villages, and townships in Cuyahoga County voted in favor of issue one to enshrine abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution? Layla?
1: Remarkably, the percentage is 100, hundred, hundred percent Every single city, village, township in the county came out in support of issue one, with Cleveland and the inner ring suburbs carrying the, the widest margins. Eastside sub- suburbs had the highest concentration of voters in favor of, of one, with Shaker Heights leading the county. They had nearly 90% of voters in support of issue one. Right behind them was neighboring suburbs, Warrensville Heights, where 88.8% voted yes, Highland Hills, 88.3, and Cleveland Heights, 87.7. The southern suburbs in the county passed issue one by the thinnest margins, just over 50% in some places. Walton Hills had the lowest at 50.9, followed by Valley View, 51.2, Independence, 52.7, and North Royalton, 54.8. All of that averages out to 73.2% countywide. And of course, that carried the day along with the other major cities uh, in, in metropolitan areas in Ohio, given that you know this this issue passed statewide with fifty six point six percent.
0: I did not see this coming. I, I know we have some conservative pockets at Cuyahoga County. Strongsville is very, very Republican. But but it's 100 percent. Every community voted for it. And it also shows you the power of Cuyahoga County in a statewide election. You know, gerrymandering has neutralized our power in the statehouse. They all cheated to create this supermajority that's not representative and they do all sorts of stupid things as a result. But when it comes to the power of the people to vote, Cuyahoga County still wields quite a bit of power. It showed it in August It showed it here But the fact that it was 100% of the communities in favor really does say something.
1: It does. Zach Smith pointed out that the map looks nearly identical to how the cities and townships voted during the special election in August. And that proposal failed by relatively the same margins in Cuyahoga County communities. Only slightly more voters rejected that issue than supported abortion, which really proves that the special election was really a proxy vote for abortion. But also, as you said, these conservative community, or com- communities that we think of as conservative are really not that conservative in some, in, you know, when you, when you really take a step back and look at it.
0: Yeah, and, and it is a women's rights issue. It's a women's health issue. And so I do think there are people who are conservative that don't look at this as a red and blue issue. They look at it as a personal choice. Interesting analysis. We're also going to publish one today, if we haven't already, on marijuana, where it's slightly different. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland took another big step to changing the future of the West Side market last night. Laura, what was it?
2: The city's handing over management to this new nonprofit, which is considered a best practice in the industry because you don't have to get tied up in the bureaucracy of City Hall to run the day to day you know, management of what is essentially a multi-tenant retail operation. The city is going to maintain ownership, so it remains a city asset. But this way it can run better, and the nonprofit will be able to access tax credits for repairs and improvements. They could get 10 to $13 million that was not available when the city had it for capital upgrades on this historic building. And this is the Cleveland Public Market um corporation that was created months ago in anticipation of this move, and that's headed by Dave Abbott, the former president of the George Gunn F- Foundation. We're still going to be paying for it in taxes probably. It's not going to turn around overnight, but this is a step.
0: Yeah, I I hope this works. I've I've always questioned how adding a different a middleman to this works, but people are so frustrated with the way the market's been working. We've done lots of stories that it's worked elsewhere. They're continuing down this road. I hope they're doing the right thing.
2: Yeah. Right now there's a lot of empty stalls in the Westside market. I haven't been there in quite a while, but when they don't have enough rent then the city can't cover the operating costs, So the city's been paying around $700,000 a year from the general fund to make up the difference. And if the new nonprofit can get grants for this if they can come up with innovative ways to serve tenants and to attract more shoppers I think that's it's going to be a win because the city has done it with you know everything else that it manages and it hasn't probably been able to devote the innovation to it that it might need.
0: yeah and if people can go there and sit down and have a meal which has long been something people desired maybe it'll attract more people there We'll see You're listening to today in Ohio. Issue 38 in Cleveland, the proposal to put $14 million into the hands of private citizens to spend, divided Cleveland City Council. Where do things stand now, Layla? Are the council members who opposed it crowing about it losing, or do they see how close they came to having it passed and have learned a lesson? Is there any recognition that council's relationship with residents is broken?
1: This is a fascinating question. Question. It, it, we're talking about here the people's budget, which would have given Cleveland citizens control over 2% of the city's general fund. And what's interesting is that because issue 38 failed so narrowly, just 49% to 51, both sides are claiming it as a victory. Council members who opposed it say that the election was a referendum on their leadership, that the voters agree with their argument that you don't need participatory budgeting because city council already represents that for the people. And the people vote for council and council controls the city's purse strings on on their behalf. And council president Blaine Griffin said the outcome of this issue shows that Clevelanders understood that this would have been bad policy, that devoting that much of the city budget to this experiment essentially would have caused harm to the city's ability to provide basic city services but meanwhile the backers of issue 38 say that it lost so narrowly that it sh- just shows just how much how or how many clevelanders feel largely unheard by their elected leaders and are eager to have more direct control tom sutton a longtime observer of cleveland politics who directs baldwin wallace's community research institute He he agreed with that take on it. He said council should really take this as a note that the city's population skews to the left and they should seek to bring the supporters of this measure into the fold.
0: Yeah, I have not understood council's approach to this from the beginning. They're kind of harumphing about how this is our job. Why would citizens do it? And I think they could have avoided all of this by setting up a very small pilot, not the one that the mayor was proposing. Cause that ultimately would have involved $5 million, which is a lot of money, but why not do it with $500,000? Say, all right, we'll put together a group. We'll give you half a million dollars. Let's see what you do with it. And if it works, if it's positive, if you're involved, if it it, 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 you know, the structure follows through, then maybe we'll expand it. But instead they've just been hostile to it. And this was a close vote. This was very close. A whole lot of people, although, turnout was still very low in Cleveland, right?
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's interesting uh, in the in the aftermath of this and the post-mortem analysis, a lot of people point to issue 24, the ballot issue that created the, the powerful Community Police Commission. Even though that policing and budgeting aren't quite apples to apples, there are some lessons to take away from what happened there. I mean, Justin Bibb backed issue 24 while his opponent, Kevin Kelly, did not. And many say that failing to recognize how important that issue was to Clevelanders was Kevin Kelly's undoing. And they say current leaders really need to take heed when it comes to issue 38 too. And how many people supported it? It's it's very likely that we'll see future council candidates come from that pro-issue 38 contingent. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think Blaine Griffin is too worried about it. <laughs> he sees this as a solid win and he's moving on. But I think that they should, you know, they should worry a little bit. Yeah, and
0: we I should point out that we did, our editorial board did endorse against this because it was a, a huge amount of money and a terrible structure. There were a lot of pitfalls, so we sided with Blaine Griffin and those who were arguing against it, like council people like Charles Slife. Um, whereas we hit endorsed in favor of issue 24.
1: But on the other hand, we, we support the notion of listening to the voices that gave rise to yes. this. Yeah. So yeah,
0: I, I think they're making a mistake not to learn from this and acting like they had a big victory because they didn't, you know, listening to today in Ohio, how are deer hunters helping to feed the hungry this season, Laura?
2: they're donating their kill. And I guess this is a good thing when you're a hunter because you fill your own freezer and then you can keep going because you have someone to give it to. This is Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry and involves a whole number of states, including Ohio. It partners with the Department of Natural Resources Division of Wildlife. And last year, about 1,100 deer, that's about one half percent of all the deer killed by hunters in Ohio and checked with the Division of Wildlife as required by law, They donated them to 60 charitable organizations across the state. That's about 57,000 pounds of venison, more than 225,000 servings. And that's because the typical deer provides about 50 pounds of meat for 200 meals. And so this is really cool. The butchers can uh, donate their time. Uh, The city of Lindhurst, which has this deer management culling program, they supply deer. And that actually helps people feel a little bit better about killing the deer in their neighborhood
0: yeah it's it's wonderful that they're using the the venison to feed the hungry. I still don't want anybody killing the deer in my neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> even though a ten point buck shredded one of my trees last week, I still think it's cool having them here, and I don't really want to see sharpshooters running down the street, but but it it's a massive win and the way it came together, Pete's story describes a guy saw a woman pulling a deer, trying to take it away. And it turned out it was roadkill and she thought she could feed her family with it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it struck him, right? I mean, so he created this multi-state program.
2: Right. Which makes me wonder about the roadkill aspect of it, (laughs) but this is not about that. This is about hunters. And, um, this division of wildlife is actually kicking in $30,000 to the program this year. Um, and the, Nonprofit pays butchering fees for individual hunters as an incentive to have them donate. So I think I misspoke when I said the butchers donate. They give some discounts sometimes. There's probably some butchers out there that do donate. But the way it all works is through this nonprofit that helps match everybody up because this is a very local thing. All right. And deer season has begun in Ohio uh, for archery. And gun season starts November 18th, at all least right. for youth.
0: You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb has been creating all sorts of strategies to find more police recruits, including raising their pay. His newest strategy could get some more mature candidates. Layla, could you now have a future as a Cleveland police officer?
1: Ha ha, hearty heart. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, along with those other recruiting strategies we've talked about uh, that the city has been deploying comes this one. They want to reduce the maximum age of recruits from 40 to 55. I guess, increase the maximum age. Is that what I meant to so say? So Chris cannot
2: be a recruit. Is that what we're <laughs> yeah.
1: saying?
2: But you <laughs> and I can.
1: <laughs> Why didn't I think that?
2: He, Why he didn't I say you first, that? He first, I feel like.
1: I know, he did. But uh, so the idea here is that age caps are, are kind of arbitrary, and they often exclude officers who have a lot of experience to offer. Not to mention that age caps eliminate military personnel who have retired from active duty but would love to continue to serve as police officers there was one police training expert who told Olivia Mitchell that sometimes age caps are just barriers to recruiting worthwhile candidates who bring a lot of valuable life experience if the person can do the job who cares what age they what what their age is that said meanwhile there's this bill pending in the state house that seeks to lower the minimum age of eligibility from 21 to 18 and it seems there is kind of a wide consensus that 18-year-olds might not be emotionally or mentally prepared to handle the demands of of this job. So in that sense, maybe we do care about age.
0: (laughs) I, I, I think it's a great idea. There's plenty of people, I think, that would like to do this later in life, and they've been boxed out because of the lower... Age limit. And I, you know, I'm not sure why they're not allowing people up to and including my age because there's some people that are in pretty good shape at that age of their life and might be good candidates to work for a few years. But, uh, but I've been surprised at how many strategies Justin Bibb has unveiled this year to deal with crime. It's just been one after another after another. And this is, this is. Could make a big difference, and you you know you both. If you get sick of being on this podcast and dealing with me, you have you have possibility for another form of employment.
1: Don't you think also that if by increasing this age cap, uh, you're going to you could end up with officers who are not going to get enough time into the public pension system? Mm-hmm. Isn't that? So by the time that they finally retire, they still will not be collecting a full pension the way someone would be if they had started in their 20s.
0: Well, I don't know, though. Is there a lot of pensions work? You you put so much time in or you get to a certain age. So they might not get as much, but it's a very lucrative pension system. You never know. Mm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sports betting has been a huge business since it started in Ohio on January 1st. Is it about to get its first big shakeup with the entry of a new player, Laura?
2: Yes, ESPN Bet, which if you think sports, ESPN is going to be the top of your list. So they're taking over for Barstool, which does not have a huge percentage of the bets in Ohio. Uh, FanDuel and DraftKings have the huge bulk of everything. And we don't even have a physical sports book in Northeast Ohio. There are four in Ohio, but not in Cleveland area, that's Barstool. But when you think about all that ESPN could do, all of its branding, all of its advertising, it's you know, it's networks. It's owned by Disney. This could be a game changer in the industry.
0: Yeah, the, the, what ESPN can bring to this, because they are the sports network, uh, they could persuade people who aren't betting to begin betting. I mean, mm-hmm. If you're if you're bombarded with ESPN promotions. Um, I do think this, this has the possibility of being pretty major. The the others in the market are pretty well entrenched. People who are betting have been using them all year. But there are, this is all about getting that first time better. And ESPN probably has as good a chance of doing that as anybody.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely, actually going live today in 17 states. It's taking over for Barstool. So if you have that app, you'll have to download the new app. But then it's going to save all your information. So it should be pretty seamless. They... Compare this to when HBO Max just became Max, which we have that, and I don't even remember it being a transition, so hopefully it'll be pretty easy for people, but I completely agree with you, Chris, because they're going to be using ESPN bet stuff on ESPN all the time. When they talk about odds for games, they're going to be using their own company's betting breakdown, right? So it's just going to be easy for people to think, oh well, I already have the backstory on this. I don't have to do any research. I already watched it. So, I, I think, I think they're going to make inroads.
0: Yeah, it, it. I think this will create another wave of gambling. We'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Blue Door Cafe and Bakery in Cuyahoga Falls had a huge controversy earlier this year. People were reading about it in enormous numbers on our website, Mm -hmm. so much so that they had to cancel reservations for Father's Day. What's the evidence that this restaurant has overcome its troubles, Laura?
2: It just won the best restaurant in northern Ohio. Ohio title from the Ohio Restaurant Association. So, if you remember back in June, the night before Father's Day, I think at like 11 p.m., the executive chef Alejandro Nidyar left the Blue Door Bakery and Cafe after four months. They had to cancel all the reservations and upcoming dinner services. I think they were off for weeks at a time. He had just completed season 21 of Fox's Hell's Kitchen. He had said he told the owner, Michael Bruno, he was going to leave, but not for another six weeks. And then he explained this change of heart on Facebook. He said that Michael Bruno was treating his staff unfairly. He was difficult to work for. Kitchen life is not military life. And the way he approaches his staff is so unprofessional and uncalled for. So obviously, that's a big dig. And you're like, do you really want to go work for this guy? But Bruno hired Chef David Chin, they returned to dinner service and Chin obviously did well enough to help him win this award. And it's based on public voting.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a remarkable turnaround because people were pretty upset with what happened back just as recently as June. Um, But I guess that, that they know what they're doing and have kept people coming.
2: Yeah, they're saying that they want this to be a stepping stone for a James Beard nomination. They said their food's consistently exceptional, but they don't think the dining room's quite ready yet. So that's what they're working toward. And Chin joined the restaurant in August, so he hasn't been there that long to win this award.
0: Okay, short episode. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Leah. Thank you for listening. We'll return on Wednesday with another discussion of the news.